There should be an outline in your bulletin. If you didn't get one coming in, feel free to grab one. There are sermon booklets that have the full manuscript, and I think they're blue this week. You can grab one. They're also available on the church website, and you can log into the Wi-Fi. I think the password is in the bulletin there. And uh, track with it there if you'd like. There are 24 years' worth of sermons on the church website that you can access. And uh, keep in prayer, too. There's a group of guys that are working on updating our website. So uh, that's coming. It takes a while, but they're working on that. We come to a section of Colossians that I've been much in prayer about. Because as a pastor, my heart is really heavy when I encounter Christians with broken relationships. And uh, this message today is all about healthy relationships. Next week, we'll look at the priority of love. Then there's a couple of verses about worship and about um, doing all to the glory of God. Uh, But... Then we'll get into a section on wives and husbands, on parents and children, on how we are to relate on the workplace. And so it's all about relationships, and that's really, really, really an important part of our witness as Christians, that we relate to one another in the love of Christ. So please pray with me that the Lord will use it. just want to read verses 12 and 13 this morning. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. What do you want most out of life? As you think about that question, I think most of us would rank healthy relationships way up there on the list. Other than knowing Christ and having eternal life, I think that healthy relationships make life more enjoyable than almost any other factor. Even if your health is not the greatest, if you have family and friends who love you, life is even enjoyable if you're suffering physically. You know, you can make a pile of money, but if your relationships are broken or shallow, your life is going to be empty. Believe that a poor man who has a loving family and friends is far richer than a rich man who is relationally poor. Relationships are important, and the Bible ranks healthy relationships at the top of the list. Uh, In Matthew 22, a Jewish religious expert asked Jesus, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus' reply is familiar to most of you. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, if you notice, both of those are relational commandments. Your relationship with God is primary. That is the foundation. Your relationship with others is also important. And really, all of the Bible is about these two relationships because Jesus said everything in the Law and the Prophets, that's a reference to the Old Testament, which was their scripture, rests on these two commandments. And because the Bible emphasizes relationships so highly, it is really heartbreaking that there are so many believers who have broken relationships. Many Christian homes have been shattered by divorce. There are some who stay married, but really, they're not very happy in those marriages. Their homes are just a tense battleground and not a a loving refuge. Uh, Many Christian parents are at odds with their kids, and many Christian youth are at odds with their parents. On the church level, there are people who bounce from church to church And they leave a trail of broken relationships behind them. I know people in this city, Christians, and they won't speak to other Christians because of misunderstandings, hurt feelings, wrongs that have taken place. They're going to have to talk to each other in heaven, but they aren't talking on earth. And so it's sad because... uh, The loving families, the genuine friendships, the deep relationships that we want out of life often elude us. Now, in our text, the Apostle Paul gives a a prescription for healthy relationships. And I can say, if you consistently practice these qualities that Paul mentions here, you will have healthy relationships. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, well, it's not a... Not a one-way thing. I mean, it's a two-way street, and sometimes it's virtually impossible to have a healthy relationship with another person. And I grant that's true because Paul said the same in Romans twelve eighteen when he said, um, if possible, so far as it depends on you, uh, live at peace, be at peace with all men. So sometimes, no matter what you do, Um, some people are just hard to get along with. I encountered one of those in an internet exchange, email exchange yesterday. This guy was just impossible to relate to. But, you know, often I think if we will practice what Paul tells us to do in our text and not do this, but do this, point to ourselves and, and... apply these things, often God will use our behavior to change the other person, if not into a close relationship, at least into a tolerable one, uh, even with difficult people. But I believe that most of our relationships will be healthy if we each one work on these 
qualities. Now, the problem is this. This is not easy medicine to swallow. It's not easy medicine because, as we have seen in Colossians 3, to develop these qualities, you've got to kill all immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. That's up in verse 5. And then, as if that were not hard enough, you've got to put aside all anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, and lying. That's in verses 8 and 9. And it's not enough to put off all of those negative qualities. Then you've got to put on these new qualities that he mentions in our text, a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. And the reason that you should do this, we'll see, is because God has graciously chosen and loved you. So, to sum up our text, Paul is saying that God's gracious, loving treatment of us is the basis for our uh, treatment of each other. So Paul first gives us the basis for the commands which follow, namely how God has treated us. And we see that God has graciously chosen us in love to be set apart unto himself. That's in verse 12, the first part. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Now, that word so is the word that's often translated therefore in the Greek text. And it shows that verse 12 is not a totally new thought. Paul is building on what came before. And so the flow of thought is something like this. Because we have laid aside the old man, and that's what we were in Adam, and because we've put on the new man, and that's what we are in Christ, and as we've seen, that new man is not just individual, but corporate. It's Christ and the church. Uh, and because in this new man, old differences, Jew and Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, because those things no longer matter, but rather Christ is now all in all. Therefore, <clears throat> we should put on these qualities that Paul is listing for us here. And he begins by stating that God has graciously chosen us. What that means is, if you're a Christian here this morning, it is because God chose you before the foundation of the world. It is not primarily because you chose God. Now, you did that, of course. But the reason you chose God is because he first chose you before the foundation of the world. And we saw that last week in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Now, that truth ought to comfort your soul, but I know enough of you and enough of Christians to know that it doesn't comfort every Christian. Some Christians really have a hard time with it. They don't like the truth of God's election for several reasons. One, it seems to deny our so-called free will. A second reason it seems to go against God's love for the whole world, John 3.16. A third reason that they don't like it is that it seems to go against God's desire for all to be saved. 
And so they explain sovereign election as God's choosing those whom he foreknew would choose him. Now, I want you to think that through with me carefully for a minute, and I believe you'll see that that is simply impossible. If that were true, then our salvation is not based on God's grace alone, because our salvation would be built on what God saw good in us. Faith is a good thing. Faith pleases God. And so we would have a share in that. It would not be by grace alone, but by grace based on something good inherent in us. And the Bible is clear there's nothing good inherent in us when we are in our sin. That view also presumes that we have the ability to believe in Christ in and of ourselves, and that contradicts many scriptures. I I listed a half a dozen or more in the text in the printed message, but just one that's familiar, John 6.44, Jesus said, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that word can is a word of ability. No one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And it's clear the Father does not draw everyone. The Bible is very clear that saving faith is a gift from God, not something that we come up with as fallen sinners on our own. Also, if God chose us by foreseeing faith, then what that means is that God made up his eternal plan based on what fallen sinners would do. He, he kind of looked down on the parade, saw which direction it would go, and said, all right, let's make the parade go that way. Uh, the Bible is very clear, however, that God works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. And really, that view makes us the sovereign and God subservient to our plan, and that's a horrible thought. You don't want to go there. Um, I can't, for sake of time, unless you let me preach for an hour or more, uh, I can't answer all those objections here in this message, but there are solid answers to all of them. But I have found this for myself. I'm speaking very personally. About 50 years ago, I was fighting God on this, and I found that when I let God be God, and I just submitted to what his word said, both the truth and the balance of the word gave me great comfort. The truth of God's word is, if you believe in Christ, the reason is because he appointed you to eternal life. It's what Acts 13.48 says in the text. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Okay, that's the truth. The balance is this. God's sovereignty never um, undermines or destroys human responsibility. They're both true in the Bible. God ordained the cross, and yet wicked men were responsible for putting Jesus on the cross, and God wasn't responsible for their sin. That is a mystery we cannot explain, but it's plain, and I could take you to many, many, many texts in the Bible. Uh, I have a sermon that I put in the notes that you can look at later that shows the balance of that. They're both true, and my testimony is this. When I quit fighting what God's word says, and submitted, that truth of sovereign election became a great comfort to my soul. 
It's a great comfort because what it means is if I am a part of God's sovereign purpose, his purpose will not fail. Uh, Philippians 1.6, Paul said, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's a great comfort if you know Christ. You didn't start it, and he started it, and he's going to finish it. And so we can rest in his sovereign grace. Also, Paul adds two other words. Not only are we chosen of God, but he says we're holy and beloved. And that's explaining what it means to be chosen. To be holy means to be set apart from this world unto God. That's our calling. To be beloved means that we're the special objects of God's love. You say, well, doesn't God love everyone? There's a sense certainly in which God loves everyone, but there's a special love he has for his elect. Let me explain it this way. I love every sister in Christ here this morning, even those of you I don't know. But you know what? I have a special love for one sister in Christ. I've been married to her for 42 years now, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that, is there? I think there's everything right with that. So you can love everyone and yet have a special love for certain ones. Holiness, sometimes we think of negatively. Oh, that means you can't do this and you can't do that. That's a wrong way to think of holiness. Holiness is a very positive thing. It means being set apart under your bridegroom. You see, my wife is set apart unto me. Why? Because I love her and she loves me. And that's a positive thing. It's a thing that deepens our relationship, that she is exclusively for me and I am exclusively for her. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're his bride. He chose you. He loved you. He gave himself for you. And so now he calls you to be set apart from this evil world unto himself so that you will know the depth of his love for you. That's a very wonderful, positive thing. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Now, one question remains. Why does Paul bring up the doctrine of election when he's talking about healthy relationships? I think for at least two reasons. Number one, number one, it's not easy to kill my selfishness and my anger and my impatience and uh, my bitterness and all these other things that we wrestle with and to practice all these qualities that Paul mentions here. But it's a lot easier when I remember where was I when God chose me? I was a rebel. I was in sin. I was running from him. He intervened. And therefore, uh, if God loved me when I wasn't very lovely, then I can love others, maybe when they're not so lovely. A second reason that I think Paul mentions it here is this, seeing myself as the object of God's gracious and sovereign love that I'm set apart unto him, frees me to love people who aren't always so lovely because I'm not dependent on their feedback for my security or for my sense of being loved. God loves me, and so I can reach out to the unlovely, and if they're kind of mean back or whatever, okay, I'm sorry. You know, if I am kind to someone and they treat my kindness meanly, That hurts. Yeah, let's be honest, it hurts. 
But as 1 Peter 3 says, I don't have to give insult for insult. I can give a blessing instead because my sense of love and security comes from the Lord. And so that frees us up to love others. So that's what Paul's saying here. Your treatment of others is rooted in God's treatment of you. God loved you before the foundation of the world. God sent his son to die for your sins. God chose you. God saved you. He did it all in grace. Now, treat others in a similar way. And he lists seven qualities. We should treat others, he says, with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and forgiveness. Now, if you're a Greek scholar, you're going, wait a minute, there's only five nouns there, and that's correct. There are only five nouns in the text in Greek, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Uh, Probably he lists the five to set them in contrast with there were five sins up in verse 5, and then there were five other sins in verse 8. So these are five virtues that um, stand opposite to them. And then the last two, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, probably describe how we actually put these five virtues into practice. But um, I'm going to just treat forbearance and forgiveness as two additional qualities, and that gives us seven. That's the perfect number, right? So we're going to look at seven virtues here that we need to practice. Now, before we look at these uh, virtues, I have two observations. The first one is every Christian should have these character qualities, Um, but there is freedom for different personality types. In other words, we're not all, as we mature, going to kind of look like one homogenous personality. Uh, I believe that these qualities work themselves out in various ways in an Apostle Paul, an Apostle Peter, an Apostle John, uh, Barnabas, whoever. And I think part of the glory of God's creation is the individuality, the different personalities that he gives us, even though some kinds of personalities rub some of us wrong and vice versa. Those kind of personalities probably don't like ours. But part of the glory of the church, as we saw in verse 11, is that all these people from different backgrounds, different races, different socioeconomic levels, they all can relate in Christ to one another. And God knocks the rough edges off our personalities. I think you can see that with Paul, who at first rejects John Mark. Barnabas takes Mark in. Later, Paul's last letter, pick up Mark and bring him with you. Paul has mellowed out over the years there. So God doesn't erase the differences. Um, Whether you're a hard-driving person or you're more laid back, whether you're more of an extrovert or an introvert, more of a people person or a task person. I think those are kind of ingrained, but these qualities will shine through in every personality. Uh, The second observation here is that all of these character qualities are modeled for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. You look at the life of Christ, and he was compassionate, he was kind, he was humble, he was gentle, he was patient, forbearing, and forgiving. And so, as we grow in Christ, uh, Christ is how we relate to one another. In Romans 13, 14, Paul says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and don't make any provision for the lust of the flesh. And so, as we grow 
in him, we will have these qualities. We'll become more like him. So let's look at them briefly. First of all, we should treat each, uh, each other, treat others with compassion. If you have an old King James, it says, with bowels of mercy. Uh, that phrase is sort of out of date, I think. Um, but the closest English equivalent is what we mean when we say heart, and therefore the New American Standard translation put on a heart of compassion is a good uh, equivalent term. The main thing to, to grasp here is a heart of compassion is an emotional word, not just a rational term. In other words, your feelings are involved. Being moved to compassion means you, you see and feel the need of someone else and you respond with appropriate help. You can track this word through, and Jesus used it of the Good Samaritan. You remember that story. He, he saw the wounded traveler. He felt compassion for him, and he was moved to care for him, moved to action. Jesus also used the word of the father of the prodigal son, who saw his son coming. The son was a wreck. You know, he was devastated. But the father moved with compassion, ran to his son, and embraced him and uh, kissed him and welcomed him home. And so there was emotion involved. Jesus, it says, was moved with compassion for the widow of Nain who had lost her only son before he raised that young man to life. It says that when Jesus saw the multitudes, he felt compassion on them. And uh, on one occasion, Jesus and his disciples had withdrawn by boat to a lonely place so they could have some R&R time, some downtime. And the crowd sensed where they were going. They ran around the lake on foot. Welcome! You know, it'd be kind of like going on your honeymoon and having your bridal party there to welcome you at the hotel. It's not the time you want friends around you. And uh, yet... It says that Jesus saw them, and he felt compassion for them, and he healed their sick. The contrast there is, the disciples saw them, and they said, and I'm sure I would have been with them, send them away. You know, they didn't want to minister to them. They just wanted, get them out of here, would you, Lord? Um, But if you lack compassion, I think you're too focused on yourself and not enough on others' needs. It says that Jesus saw that multitude, and he felt compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. The disciples saw the same crowd, and they didn't feel compassion because they were focused on, I need some time away from people. You know, get them out of here. And if you're involved in ministry, you have experienced that very kind of dynamic. Now, when you're Encountering a difficult person and you're inclined to be irritated rather than have compassion for him or her, one thing you can do is just ask and then listen as they tell you their story. And often when you find out what a person has gone through, your, your heart goes out to them as you realize, wow, you know, that's pretty hard. And you can enter in with compassion toward them. The second quality, Jesus says, I mean, Paul says, Jesus would say the same, that we should treat others with kindness. 
To be kind means to be free from whatever is harsh or rough or bitter. The word is used in the Gospel of Luke to describe wine that has mellowed. In other words, it doesn't bite or leave a bitter taste in your mouth. And so a kind person is not demanding. They're not pushy. A kind person gives other people room to be imperfect without crawling all over them and wanting them to be a certain way. I think a great example in the Bible of kindness is Joseph in the Old Testament. You know the story how his brothers meanly sold him into slavery. He did the right thing and resists Potiphar's wife's advances, and he's thrown unjustly into prison, spends years in the horrible Egyptian dungeon. And then um, the Lord raises him up to second in the land. He easily could have taken vengeance on his brothers, but instead he shows kindness to them. And then at the denouement of the story, at the end there, Jacob, their father, has died, and the brothers go, "Uh uh-oh, payday. You know, Joseph's going to pay us back now that dad's gone. And they come to him and, uh, you know, are groveling before him. And it says that Joseph wept. He wept and said, I'm not in the place of God. And he spoke kindly to his brothers, and he reassured them he would continue to care for them and their little ones. And so Joseph is an example of kindness. Jesus said that God himself is kind to evil and ungrateful men. Paul said the kindness of God leads us to repentance. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says that um, if you've tasted God's kindness, it should motivate you to long for the pure milk of the word so that you might grow in respect to sal- uh, for salvation. And the point is, if you show God's kindness to others, God can use it to motivate them to repentance, to motivate them to want to get into the word of God and to change. And so we have to be kind. Uh, the third quality Paul mentions is that we should treat others with humility. And it's often said, well, if you think you're humble, you're not. And I don't find that comment either helpful or accurate. Um, it's not very helpful because how in the world am I supposed to obey the command to be humble if I can't know that I'm being humble? You know, does it just kind of sneak up on me from behind? Uh, it's not correct because there are three men of God in the Bible who claim humility. Uh, Moses wrote the book of Numbers, and in Numbers 12.3, it says he was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Um, He wrote it. Uh, Jesus said, I am humble in heart when he invites us to come and take his yoke upon us and so on. And then Paul claimed to be humble as well. So I think we can know when we're being humble. Being humble, too, doesn't mean that you're kind of a groveling, uh, Casper milk toast kind of person and all of that. You know, somebody pays you a compliment and you kind of look down and get embarrassed and say, oh, shucks, you know, it wasn't me. Uh, That's not real humility. I think if someone pays you a compliment, you can honestly say thank you. They're trying to encourage you. Um, So what what does this mean, uh, true humility? Well, First, three things. First of all, uh, the, the Greek word, by the way, means lowliness of mind. 
And there's three aspects. First, a humble person is Christ-sufficient, not self-sufficient. In other words, we recognize, in myself, I'm weak. If I'm left to myself, I'm in big trouble. But thankfully, I'm in Christ. I'm a branch in the vine. I rely on him. And so you recognize everything I am, everything I have, God gave me. And I'm weak, but when I'm in the Lord, I'm strong. A second aspect of humility is a a humble person has an honest evaluation of himself. In Romans 12.3, Paul said this, that uh, through the grace given to me, notice Paul didn't deserve it, it was grace. Through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, that's our tendency, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And so he goes on to talk about spiritual gifts. And so a humble person doesn't think on the one hand, I'm God's gift to the church. You know, that's overestimating who you are. None of us are indispensable. And on the other hand, a humble person doesn't think, oh, I'm nothing. I can't do anything uh, and bury your talent. Rather, you use it as a servant for the Lord. Uh, A third aspect of humility is that the humble person esteems others more highly than himself. And we read that during the worship time, Philippians 2, 3 and 4, where Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't um, merely look out for your own interests, own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. And then, as you know, he goes on to mention Jesus, who laid aside the glory of heaven and took on the form of a servant, even obedient to the cross, because he esteemed us more highly than he did himself. So... Paul says here, then, that we should treat others with a heart of compassion, with kindness, with humility, but fourthly, with gentleness, with gentleness. The King James Version translates it as meekness. There's really no good single English word to to sum up this Greek word. It doesn't mean to just be a mild-mannered, a kind of uh, milk toast personality who's in the shadows and doesn't do anything. Jesus was gentle, but boy, he was bold as a lion in confronting the Pharisees and the scribes and the hypocrites. Uh, the Greek word mainly has the concept of strength under submission. It was used of trained animals. If you've ever been around a trained horse, it is powerful, it is strong but it's totally submissive to the tug of the master. And that's a good picture of what humility, or what gentleness, I should say, means. Uh, The gentle person, in other words, is not self-willed. If the master says stop, he stops. If he says go, he goes. And uh, Plato used this word of a gentle doctor who would use enough force to set a broken bone, but not more than was necessary. He, He knew that He just needed to bring healing. And so the gentle person sometimes has to be strong enough to confront sin, Galatians 6.1, but you do it with gentleness. 
You, you have an aim to correct the person, to bring them back to the Lord. The fifth quality Paul mentions is patience. Kindness, gentleness, and patience are all in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and 23. The Greek word for patience literally means being long-tempered. In other words, you don't have a short fuse or you blow up. Um, it means that you're tolerant of imperfections in other people. It means that you put up with the differences and faults in them and you give them time to change and uh, time to make mistakes in the process. If you're like I am and you're a perfectionist, this is a hard quality. Uh, I used to get caught up short all the time as a parent with 1 Corinthians 13.4. First quality, love is patient. (sighs) (laughs) And I wasn't patient, and so that would convict me, but we should be patient. And then, sixthly, we should treat others with forbearance. That means you put up with somebody else's faults, with their idiosyncrasies. Um, You know, being different doesn't necessarily mean being wrong. There are a lot of areas in the Bible that are gray areas. A lot of personality things are just gray areas. It's not right. It's not wrong. It's just different. And that's one of the great truths you learn the first week you're married. Um, She doesn't do everything my way. My way is the right way. Why? Because it's my way. No, it's not right. There are other ways to do it. Now, I'm not talking about biblical absolutes. There are biblical moral absolutes that you don't bend an inch. You know, you do it in love, but you hold to the truth. But I'm talking about those areas that aren't biblical absolutes. We have to be forbearing. And then finally, treat others with forgiveness. And that means instead of holding a grudge, instead of harboring bitterness or seeking revenge, instead of being resentful, we have to forgive those who wrong us. Did you notice in verse 13, whoever has a complaint against anyone? See, you wouldn't need some of these qualities if you never had a complaint, would you? You know, I mean, if if all relationships were wonderful and, you know, one foot in heaven, we wouldn't need to be patient and forgiving and forbearing and all of those other qualities. Um, So you can't excuse yourself here by saying, well, if he would just do it, I would. You know, this is the way we often deal with relational problems is blaming the other. Paul's saying, no, no, focus on your own issues and, um, you know, be patient, forbearing, forgiving to those who treat you wrongly. And then Paul adds the kicker, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Uh, The Greek word for forgive here, there's a couple of Greek words. One just means to let something go. This word is different. It means uh, to show grace to another person is the idea. Karidzomai is the, the verb. And it means when we didn't deserve God's forgiveness, he forgave us in Christ. Now, Show that to others. Show that to others. Forgiveness, I've preached whole messages on this, so I'm just condensing it into a couple of minutes here. But 
Forgiveness doesn't mean going, oh, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. That's not how God dealt with our sin. God absorbed the price. He sent his own son to bear the penalty we deserve. And what it means is you absorb the hurt that the other person caused. You don't make them pay. Uh, One time I was counseling with a couple. They're not here at this church. But they'd been married a long time. And every time we got together, they would dredge up stuff from the past. I mean, it was awful. And they had been in serious conflict, calling the police on me. He did that 10 years ago. And we were just going around and around the merry-go-round. So as I prayed about how to counsel them, they came in and I said, look, you claim to be a Christian. I said to the husband, to the wife, you claim to be a Christian. Christians forgive one another. And I said, we're not getting off this merry-go-round until you forgive each other. I looked at the husband and said, will you forgive her for all these things she's done? And he sat there for a long minute, silent, and he said, I will. I looked at the wife and I said to her, will you forgive him for all these things he's done? And you should have seen her face. It got all contorted. And she was sitting there and she finally blurted out and said, if I forgive him, he goes free. And I said, yeah, that's what forgiveness means, all right. I said, that's what God did in Christ for you. He paid the penalty and you went free. And she said, I'm not going to do that. And I said, well, there's my door. When you decide to do it, come back. Sadly, they're divorced now. Uh, We have to forgive. And you know, when the Lord forgives, he doesn't hold it over us. Remember all I did for you? You no good and lousy person. You know, we use forgiveness sometimes as leverage, don't we? You know, I am now in the dominant position because I was magnanimous enough to forgive you. And you owe it to me. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness wipes the slate clean. Now, that doesn't mean that trust is instantly restored. Depending on the level of violation, forgiveness is a decision to to grant. Trust is earned over time, and trust is what builds the relationship back. And so you may forgive a partner who's been unfaithful, but you don't trust him. Trust has to be earned by faithful behavior. So keep that in mind, but we should forgive. Um, So as the Lord forgave, so also should you. And God forgave, by the way, when we repented. There's no forgiveness as far as granting it until there's repentance. And some authors differ with me on that, but I think I can prove it biblically. So the point here is, because God graciously chose us in love to be set apart to himself, we should treat others with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and forgiveness. And that treatment of us is the basis for how we treat others. Now, maybe you're wondering, where do I start? Some of you need to start in your relationship with God. If you're here this morning and you've never repented of your sin and trusted in Christ to forgive your sin, then you're not right with God. God offers complete pardon, eternal life as a free gift to every sinner who repents and trusts Christ. And that's where you start. 
because you're not uh, chosen of God, holy and beloved, if you haven't repented. I mean, you may be chosen, but you haven't experienced it at this point if you haven't repented. So you start with God and get right with him. Then I would recommend you write down verses like our text on a card, 1 Corinthians 13, which I think Tom's going to speak on next Sunday. Verses like that on a 3 by 5 card. Keep them by your breakfast table and read them over every morning. Just read them, read them, read them until they become part of your brain. Now, then, this one is dangerous. Figure out which of these qualities you most need to work on and make it an item of prayer. Here's why it's dangerous. Lord, make me a patient man. Ooh. There's a laboratory where you learn patience, and it's with difficult people. And so if you pray that prayer, he may bring somebody very difficult into your life. But we need to pray for them. And then act obediently, not on feelings. When you blow it, and you will, confess it to the Lord. If you need to, go to the one you wronged and ask forgiveness. And you may need to start there. You may need to go to your mate, to your children. Say, I was really wrong in how I spoke to you. Please forgive me. And you begin there. And so you make a habit, as Paul has said, of putting on these new clothes, taking off the old clothes, the, the sin of verses 5 and 8 and 9, putting on these new clothes. And if you do that, you will never in this life have perfect relationships. That's for heaven. But you will have substantially healthy relationships. Let's pray. Dear Lord, this is hard truth. Hard for all of us because we all live in this fallen world and we're fallen. And so we wrong others and we've been wronged by others. And we need a lot of grace from you to be obedient in our relationships. And I ask for every person, every single person, every person who's part of a family that you would help us. I pray that this church would be known for our loving, healthy relationships with one another, that the name of Christ would go forth from here, not just in word, but in deed. And I ask that if any here don't know you as Savior and Lord, today would be the day they would put their trust in Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.